Romans chapter 11, verses 17 through 22 for the reading of the morning text. Paul, in this text today, refers to Israel as a cultivated olive tree and the Gentiles as a wild olive tree. Now here he shows how unbelieving Jews are broken off of that olive tree and Gentiles who do believe are grafted into that, showing that the difference in true Israel is not Jewness or non-Jewness, but it's belief in Christ. Let's read. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Now I want to talk today and next Sunday about the insufficiency of hell to produce genuine repentance, and I want to talk about hell as an echo of the glory of God. So I have entitled the message for both weeks, The Echo and the Insufficiency of Hell. The verse out of this text that was just read, that I'm taking as a command from the Lord for me and for you, is verse 22, which says, Behold, that is, look at, consider, meditate on, behold the kindness and the severity of God. Now, we all like to consider the kindness of God. We like to look at that, consider it, think about it, focus on it, and we should. Most of our time should be spent considering the kindness of God. Now, don't fault yourself if that's your favorite, okay? That's okay. That should be your favorite. However, if you leave off the second half of that command, namely, behold the severity of God, you're doing something that is probably disobedient. That seems that way to me. It's a command. Behold the severity of God. If you say, I don't want to behold it. I don't want to think about it. Then you're disobeying the Bible. It's dangerous to do that. It's dishonoring to God, I think. It's dangerous. You, you take a little child, a little teeny child, that's sort of finding his or her way around in the kitchen for the first time, figuring out what everything is, and you show them the stove with its red hot eye on top, and you say, now this is, this is an oven, and this is good. This can make water bubble so that hard sticks turn into nice soft spaghetti. And it can take a, a frying pan and make a slimy, gooey, raw egg turn into a nice white and yellow breakfast. And it can take these hard, crunchy things that nobody likes and make them pop into popcorn. This is good. This is a good 
eye of the stove. And you just stop. That's good. And you just kind of watch. You are not a loving person. You're not a loving parent to do that. If you don't also say, and by the way, get very serious and look them right in the eye and don't make any games out of it. This is called hot. And it really hurts if you touch it. If you misuse this, if you take it and abuse it and make out of it something it was never intended to be, like a hand rest or an elbow pad, you will be hurt. Now that's love talking. That's love talking. Okay? So when Paul says, consider the severity of God, that's love talking. There's a lot of people today who with very soft and tender and relational and warm language will divert our attention again and again away from hell. And think that they're being loving. They sound loving. They talk the language of love. But if it's real, it's not loving to do that. One of my motives in choosing to take two weeks on hell is because of what happened to me on my study writing leave for the past few weeks. Namely, bumping up against repeatedly contemporary, well-known, respected Bible teachers who are abandoning belief in the historic, biblical understanding of hell and wanting to weep inside at who they are. You may ask, what do you mean historic biblical understanding of hell? What's that, historic biblical understanding? And all I mean by that is those sentences that are usually found at the end of historic biblical confessions. The one in our church that we use as an affirmation of faith ends like this. We believe in the final judgment, the eternal happiness of the righteous, and the endless suffering of the wicked. Now those two those two words, endless suffering is what I mean by the historic biblical view of hell. Congregational affirmations of faith, Lutheran affirmations of faith, Presbyterian affirmations of faith, Catholic affirmations of faith, Methodist affirmations of faith, Baptist affirmations of faith historically have all affirmed everlasting suffering as a punishment for not believing in Jesus and for walking in sin. Now today, it's being abandoned. And I wouldn't make so much of that if it weren't insiders who were abandoning it. Friends, brothers, And the way it's being abandoned is in a very typical pattern for the abandonment of other doctrines and other practices that the Bible teaches today. Namely, not because of the impulse of Scripture itself, but because of the impulses of the culture and the impulses of the heart shaped increasingly by the culture. Let me give you a couple of examples. Clark Pinnock whose books have ministered to me 
For 25 years, ever since I was in seminary, I have turned to books like Reason Enough as an apologetic and his book on Scripture and its inerrancy. Wrote in 1990, I was led to question the traditional belief in everlasting conscious torment because of moral revulsion and broader theological considerations, not, first of all, on scriptural grounds. You've got to admire his candor that he's honest about that anyway. He goes on. It just does not make sense to say that a God of love will torture people forever for sins done in the context of a finite life. It's time for evangelicals to come out and say that the biblical and morally appropriate doctrine of hell is annihilation, not everlasting torment. Close quote. Now that's a classical way that people move from biblical orthodox belief to unbiblical, unorthodox disbelief. The process is not that they find scriptures that lead them to new conviction all by itself. The process is a cultural milieu, a spirit of the age that defines love, defines justice, defines equality, defines what is good, the gradual transformation of the emotional life and then a turning to Scripture and finding that what emotionally is desirable isn't there and therefore denying that what is there is there. The process of importing onto the Bible the spirit of the age and the internal desires that we have conspire, they conspire to transform the Bible to mean what it does not mean, has not been taken to mean by the church for 2,000 years. Another example, and this one is the most grievous of all to me, because John Stott transformed my life, or God used him in 1967 at Urbana, 67. His books are vastly to be desired, and yet he wrote in 1988, Quote, emotionally, I find the concept of eternal conscious torment intolerable and do not understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. Scripture points in the direction of annihilation. So both Clark Pinnock and John Stott have abandoned the historic biblical understanding of hell as eternal suffering. And instead, they say that those who do not believe will fall out of existence when they die or be put out of existence at the judgment. Now, when I started bumping into this, they're not the only ones, during my writing leave, I spent a lot of time rethinking this whole issue. And in the book that, Lord willing, will emerge from this whole process, there's a section in which I deal with 16 biblical texts that relate to the endlessness of conscious suffering as the judgment of unbelief. 
I've got them all listed here on my notes if you want to get the manuscript next week. I won't go into that in detail now. It is not a small doctrine. It is not a peripheral doctrine out there on the edges of orthodoxy. It is a massive change to say that there is endless suffering and to say there is no suffering, period, but only non-existence. That's a massive change. Picture Adolf Hitler rising at the white throne judgment to hear the verdict of God on his life. And the Lord Jesus, the Lord of all the earth, the judge of the universe, steps forward in all his holiness and brilliance and says to Adolf Hitler, because of your unbelief and your hatred of me and my cause, my people, because of your disobedience, because of your arrogance, because of the violence and the misery that you brought into the life of millions of people without my warrant, from this day forward, you will not exist. I think a big smile would break right across Adolf Hitler's face and say, Really? Right on. That's what I've been counting on. All right. Flack it to me. You know, if you, if you think that annihilationism is an appropriate response to a life of sinning against the glory of God, and you think that somehow there's a, a negative experience about it, I want to ask you a question. As I look out over you, I'm, I'm confident nobody in this room was alive a hundred years ago. So I'm going to give you a test and let you raise your hand. You raise your hand if a hundred years ago you were experiencing one millimeter of discomfort over that non-existence. Just raise your hand. Nobody? Not even a millimeter of remorse or regret or pain or something that you weren't existing? Nothing? Come on. Surely, there's, surely there was a downside to your non-existence, wasn't there? There is no downside to non-existence. You can't even regret not being in the presence of the glory of God. Annihilationism takes sin and unbelief and transforms it from its biblical place of high treason, worthy of capital punishment, into a misdemeanor. That's not the main problem. The main problem is the Bible teaches everlasting torment as the consequence of a life of sin and unbelief. It's a dreadful thing. A dreadful, dreadful thing. When Paul says, behold the severity of God, we should do that. We should not turn away from it. We should not flee from it. It's not an isolated doctrine. It's a profound and dreadful reality. I don't know of anybody who has overstated the horror of hell. 
I don't know of any piece of artwork as disgusting as they can be that's overdone the sufferings of hell. And the reason I say that is not because I have a very bright imagination about it, but because Jesus, and Jesus above everybody in the Bible, used the most horrid language for hell. Not Paul. He never used the word hell. The apostle of love, John, called it a lake of fire, and Jesus gave it all of its other names. Like outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, their worm shall not die, unquenchable fire, eternal fire, the hell of fire, eternal punishment, anguish in the flame. Jesus is the one who tried to help us shudder. That's the point of it. Jesus' words about hell are designed to make us shudder. And you know, it's so strange that almost everybody who talks or writes about hell today strives for words that pull the shudder out of it, pull the pain out of it. They turn it into a psychological affair or a self-chosen prison of psychological discomforts. Everybody turns away from Jesus on this issue. Jesus is the one who said, their worm will not die. It is eternal fire. It is weeping and grinding of the teeth without end. That's Jesus talking. Nobody else in the New Testament. Revelation 4.11 John, the beloved apostle of love, uses language that makes clearest the eternality of it. He said in Revelation 14.11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Now, I've read the arguments of John Stott as he weasels with that verse. He cannot escape that verse. He cannot. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. It's a horrible, horrible reality. And so I want to close with a warning. I want to just take the words of Jesus. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Because it is better to enter life maimed or lame than with two hands and two feet to be cast into eternal fire. Translating that very simply, brothers and sisters, let us enter mortal combat with sin in our lives. Don't worry about other people's sins. Don't be a blamer and a condemner. Fight against your own. Because the battle is mortal. And I urge you 
to engage in a process of thought that is very different from the one that abandons orthodoxy. Instead of coming to the Bible and saying, I feel, I just feel that endless suffering cannot be just and it cannot be from a loving God. And then you open your Bible and you say, that cannot be there. Now that's the process by which a person moves from orthodoxy to unorthodoxy and from evangelicalism to liberalism and from belief to unbelief. The elevation of our own processes of thought and feelings above what is written. I rather commend you to follow a process that goes like this. Rather say when you come to the Bible, since the Bible teaches everlasting suffering, I will say what a dreadful reality sin must be. What an unspeakable offense against the glory of God sin must be. What an infinite dishonor of God's trustworthiness my unbelief and distrust of His promises must be. What a horrid thing it must be to blackball the living God and say His word is not true and go my own way. Hell is designed to be an echo of the glory of God. The point of hell is to cry, look what you've done. Look what he's like. We are not to take our little piddly conceptions about justice and love and righteousness and equality and fairness and dump them on the Bible. We're to stand humbly before the Bible and let it shape our awe at the glory of God, which is so great that when anybody scorns it for one second or one hundred years, hell is the only appropriate response. It ought to have an effect on the way we feel about the glory of God. Who are we that we should tell God how He may respond to those who offend against His glory? And here's one other final concluding echo. I asked my boys at the breakfast table this morning, can you see a connection between the horror of hell and its everlastingness and the beauty of Jesus on the cross? you see any connection? The connection is this. Let's just take the three or four hundred people that are here in this room and think about this. For, if it, if hell, everlasting torment, is a just recompense for the rebuff to God that sin and unbelief is, and the dishonoring and the scorning of infinite glory, if hell is an appropriate just response to that, and one person in this room escapes that, though we deserve it, and they escape it because of the life and death of Jesus, what does that mean about what Jesus bore? He bore one person's eternity of hell. That's the only way it can be just for me to go to heaven. All of my eternal torments were contracted into a span, somehow a 33-year span of loss of glory, of scorn and shame and belittling and denial and abandonment 
and betrayal and pain and suffering and rending between the Godhead. All of that was a bearing of one man's everlasting torments. And then multiply that by these 300 people who are believing. And multiply that by the tens of millions who are going to be saved by the blood of Jesus. And ask yourself, is not hell an awesome echo of the excellency of the cross? I'm going to stand by this biblical teaching because I love the cross. I'm going to stand by this biblical teaching because I love the glory of God. To take the punishment of everlasting torment and turn it into a misdemeanor of click, you're out of existence, is to belittle the glory of the Lord and to make His cross a small thing. Biblically. If you love the cross, if you cherish the old rugged cross, if you want to esteem it for all the glory that it's worth in bearing a million hells, that you might go totally free, then we better not abandon this command. Consider the severity of God. Lord Jesus, I praise you, I bless you, and I honor you for your bearing millions of hells in your 33 years of humiliation. We have scarcely begun to appreciate what you endured. We have scarcely begun to be awed by what it meant to leave the glory and take on human flesh, not to mention be spit upon and beaten and abandoned by your Father and by your disciples. We have not begun to feel it because we turn away from hell again and again and say, I don't want to think about it. It can't be. Father, open our eyes to the horror of this thing that we might love Christ. That we might feel the wonder of His atoning work. And that we might esteem Your glory and shudder and tremble with joy at our salvation. And now, Lord, give us that wonderful mingled peace and joy and love as we ponder your kindness with a sobriety and earnestness and solemnity and seriousness that comes as we ponder your severity. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.